The following podcast contains graphic descriptions of policemen that some listeners may find boring. Episode 1. Crime of the Unknown Crime On the 26th of April 1995, at around 3.45pm, in a small suburb to the west of Melbourne, at the edge of a run-down housing estate, in a neglected and overgrown local park, somewhere towards the middle of the park, in a small kids' playground containing, amongst other things, a few swings and a roundabout, on a plastic slide at the back of the playground, approaching the bottom of the slide but still with a crucial few centimetres to go, was a little boy and future podcaster by the name of me. Hello. A split second later, I was to reach the bottom of the slide and instantly went back to have another go on it. Or maybe I went on the climbing frame instead. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. The point is, I was having a nice day out in the park. But little did I know. Luckily, I know a bit more now. The fact is... Not everybody was having a nice day out. At exactly the same time as I was fucking about in that playground, a body was being discovered, in almost exactly the same spot except a few hundred metres away, and about three weeks earlier, give or take a few kilometres and and ten years. The body was that of a man called Doe. John Doe. In other words... No one had a clue who he was, except that he was called John Doe, but that probably wasn't his real name, it was just a lucky guess. So what was his real name? Tony Doe? Maybe, maybe not. The point was, he had been murdered. Simon Doe was another possibility. But who had murdered him, and why? David Toe, because he hated him? David Bowie, because he loved him. Again, maybe, maybe not. Police weren't ruling anything out at this stage because of one vital fact. They didn't know about the murder yet. One name we do know is the name of the woman who discovered the body. Her name was Frances Pack, and it still is to this day and probably tomorrow as well. At the time, she was working as a yoga instructor, and she still is to this day, unless you're listening to this after 5pm, in which case she's probably gone home. Frances Pack's memory of events is somewhat hazy these days, but it wasn't hazy at the time, so that's when she decided to remember everything. If it wasn't for her quick thinking, we'd know next to nothing about what happened, instead of which we know next to something. According to her, the body was lying face up or face down in a pool of blood and brains, or brains and blood, just next to a popular hedge. And on top of the corpse was a note, written in either black ink or black blood, that consisted of one word only. There was no doubt about it. It was murder. Murder. 
not not the word on the note. That that was the word only, as I said. But but the crime was murder, premeditated murder, and by the looks of it, a little bit postmeditated as well. Francis Pack immediately went into hysterics, which was a nearby health food shop, and asked for help and some lavender oil. Unfortunately, they'd run out of lavender oil, but luckily Francis had run out of the door, followed by Daisy Holmes, who owned the shop, leaving Bert Warbler, who was working the tills that day, to call the police. Bert Warbler is a fascinating character who played an important part in subsequent events but he irritates me, so let's move on. The police were on the scene within minutes, and at around 4.03pm, they erected a cordon around the body just like they do on telly, but more realistically because it was real. The officer in charge of the case was Sergeant Shane Bone, and this was his first ever murder case since lunch, and he had precious little evidence to go on. An unidentified male corpse lying face up or maybe face down with a mysterious note on the front or back of his coat. But one thing struck the sergeant immediately. The look of terror on the dead man's face or the back of his head. Bone's first priority was to locate the murder weapon. And here his investigative experience came into play. On close examination, he discovered the victim had been shot with intent to cause a bullet hole, which meant that the murder weapon could only have been one thing, a gun. But which gun? Had anybody heard a gun going off? What did the gun look like? Was it a splendid gun? All these questions remained unasked, except for some of them but they all remained unanswered, except for none of them. Instead, Sergeant Bone had the victim's clothes dusted for fingerprints, but with little success as the clothes weren't very dusty. Next, he went through the victim's pockets. He found a packet of chewing gum in one of them, but unfortunately the victim had forgotten to sign it, so that was no help at all. But, when the body was moved, another scrap of paper was revealed, on which were written the letters IOU and the dollar symbol and the number 5000 and the punctuation mark full stop and the figures OO. At last, Sergeant Bone had something to go on. He deduced that whoever had written the note was trying to write down all the vowels in the alphabet but forgotten the first two and that he had bet a dollar that there were 5000 more but that he'd come to a full stop and said, ooh. But how did this tally with the note that was found on top of the corpse? The note that only read only, only. At this point, Sergeant Bone would have drawn a blank if it hadn't been for the fact that he didn't have a pencil on him. So he imagined a blank instead. Two separate scraps of paper, one that said, I owe you $5,000, and the other that said only. There didn't seem to be any link at all. At this point, another policeman on the scene, Constable Jim Turner, pointed out that the two pieces of paper fitted together exactly. But Sergeant Bone explained that so what, they're two different pieces of paper, you dick. Constable Turner said it may be one piece of paper ripped in half, 
At which point, Sergeant Bones sent Turner to go and see if the gun had been dumped in one of the 40 dog waste bins in the local area, and he wasn't allowed to use gloves. While Turner was gone, Sergeant Bone had a brainwave. Maybe the two bits of paper had been connected at some point in the past, and that made sense. Only IOU, $5,000. In other words, these are the only three vowels I can remember, and $5,000. At last he was getting somewhere. Also, I've just remembered I went on the trampoline after I got off the slide. All of which goes to show we're still finding more out about this perplexing case even after so many years have passed under the bridge. But what of Frances Pack? In her book, Yoga for Yummy Mummies, she doesn't mention the murder at all, so that was a waste of money. But eyewitness testimony reports that at around 4.15pm, she tapped Sergeant Bone on the left shoulder if he was facing her, or the right shoulder if he had his back to her, or the other shoulder if it was her other arm, and vice versa. Anyway, he said what, and she pointed to someone who hasn't been mentioned yet, but who is the last and probably the most important piece of the jigsaw puzzle, which is usually a bit of sky. The person she was pointing to was Alan Chipwick, a 42-year-old jogger and logger from Wagga Wagga, and that's not funny, that's the facts. He was seated on a park bench about 15 metres away from the body, covered in blood, holding a gun and muttering, I killed him, I killed him, over and over again, which must have been really annoying. Sensing that this might be the break in the case that he was looking for, Sergeant Bone approached Alan Chipwick and asked him if he'd seen anything suspicious recently. Chipwick's response was surprising. He didn't say yes or no, he just ran away, which probably meant yes. Even if it meant no, Sergeant Bone thought it was worth investigating, so he took off in pursuit. The resulting chase lasted over an hour and involved multiple vehicles, an escaped elephant and a helicopter crashing into a hovercraft. It was probably the most exciting part of the whole story, but it also involved Bert Warbler, and besides, I feel a bit sick. So we rejoin the narrative when Alan Chipwick was taken into custody. He was handcuffed and frog-marched into the police station, then frog-taken to an interview room and frog-interrogated. This interrogation by Sergeant Bone and the duty officer, Inspector James Portion, was rigorous, but quite funny. At first they didn't have much success. Chipwick was sticking to the story that he hadn't seen anything suspicious at the time of the shooting because he'd been too busy shooting the victim. But of course there was no way of proving this so he must have made it up. When questioned as to whether he knew the victim's name, Chipwick claimed he only knew him as Mr Doe because he was a moneylender. No questions asked except the question can you lend me some money. Something about this statement rang an alarm bell with Sergeant Bone, and after a couple of hours' discussion and a game of Never Have I Ever with Inspector Portion, it suddenly struck him. How could Chipwick have known the victim was called Doe? And was it John Doe, Tony Doe or Simon Doe? If Chipwick knew, he wasn't telling. And if he didn't know, he also wasn't telling, 
because he didn't know. Sergeant Bone realised that Chipwick must be holding something back. It was time to bring out the big guns. But there was only one gun. The gun Chipwick had been found with. And it wasn't that big. At first, the gun couldn't be located, and Bone thought it must have been lost in the exciting chase. Maybe when the motorbike did a backflip over the ice cream van. But then, following a tip from Chipwick himself, who told them he'd got it in his jacket pocket, they discovered the gun hidden in Chipwick's jacket pocket. Sergeant Bone shoved the gun in Chipwick's face and asked him point blank if he had ever seen it before. Chipwick replied, But that's my gun, the one I shot Mr. Doe with, thus skillfully avoiding the question. Sergeant Bone lost his temper at this point and started waving the gun about, going, Pachow, 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 and spinning it round his finger like a cowboy. This seemed to make Chipwick nervous, leading him to make his second mistake. He suddenly blurted out, Careful, that thing's loaded at which point Sergeant Bone knew he had him on the ropes. He leaned in close and said, How do you know it's loaded if you've never seen it before? Chipwick couldn't answer this, although that could be because at this point the gun went off, hitting him in the throat. Talk about saved by the bell. Although it wasn't a bell, it was a bullet. A bellet. From this moment on, Chipwick refused to answer any more questions. He just sat there gurgling, and with no hard evidence, the policeman had no choice but to let him go, although they had to call him an ambulance just so he could rub their faces in it by leaving the police station in style. But Sergeant Bone wasn't giving up quite so easily. He insisted on travelling with Chipwick in the back of the ambulance, promising to split the fare with him. You see... One thing that was still niggling at Sergeant Bone was that IOU note, and while they were alone, so as not to arouse any suspicion, he casually asked Chipwick to recite all the vowels of the alphabet, in order. However, Chipwick was still having difficulty speaking, so they only got as far as A and E, which was where Chipwick had to be dropped off. Bone had to let that line of inquiry go for the time being, which it still is being now, because he forgot about it. But there was still the crime of murder to account for. Bone knew that if Frances Pack would agree to a lineup, she would correctly identify Alan Chipwick as the guy she'd seen on the park bench, because it was him. But first, Alan Chipwick himself had to agree to a lineup. Luckily, he did. And when he correctly picked Frances Pack out of a group of six yoga instructors, that meant her own lineup could go ahead. Unfortunately, many procedural errors were made during this second lineup. Owing to a misunderstanding, all the suspects were standing the wrong way round. And not only that, so was Frances Pack, so she couldn't see any of them anyway. Also, the policeman in charge, Constable Brendan Burke, had put his hat on backwards so he couldn't see who Francis Pack was pointing at. This was coupled with the fact that he was holding his notepad upside down and was trying to write with the wrong end of the pen. Police had no choice but to let everyone go, 
including all the convicted criminals in the cells downstairs. It was nothing short of a disaster. Alan Chipwick was so cocky at having got away with it for a second time, he even offered to give Sergeant Bone a lift home. But this overconfidence was to prove his third mistake. Approaching a set of traffic lights, he broke down and confessed to the murder as they were getting out of his broken down car. Sergeant Bone had a hunch this might be his last chance to get to the bottom of the case, so he told Chipwick that if he didn't give him the lift home he promised, he could be arrested for wasting police shoes. Reluctantly, Chipwick agreed to continue with the lift, but obviously it now had to be on foot. Bone's strategy worked. As they continued their journey, Chipwick began to open up about what had really happened, admitting to the fact that he was actually addicted to gambling. Sergeant Bone bet him five dollars that he wasn't, but immediately lost that bet and was so annoyed about it he didn't really listen to the rest of what Chipwick had to say. But apparently Chipwick described how his gambling addiction had inevitably led to his spiralling into debt and how he'd ended up borrowing $5,000 from Mr. Doe, which he had no way of paying back. In desperation, Chipwick had arranged to meet Mr. Doe in order to try and persuade him to give him longer to repay the money, or at least lend him another $5 so he could go to the cinema. When he'd refused, Chipwick pulled a gun on him, and in the scuffle Mr. Doe was shot through the head. The story was all beginning to fall into place. But at this point, Chipwick also confessed that his arms were getting tired, and Bone realised that Chipwick would have probably said anything to get him off his back, so Sergeant Bone reluctantly got off his back. There was nothing he could do except hug Chipwick goodbye and walk the rest of the way home on his own two feet. Chipwick had slipped through his fingers yet again. The case was eventually brought to trial five months later, but in the absence of any new evidence, it was a mere formality. The verdict was recorded as death by misadventure. Chipwick pled guilty to the murder, but unfortunately he wasn't the accused. That was misadventure, a local beauty queen, who was sentenced to six months hard cheese. Chipwick had to be ejected from court, all the while protesting his guilt, and was found in contempt, a nearby French restaurant, celebrating with a slap-up glass of water as he recovered from his harrowing victory. He'd literally gotten away with murder, and to this date, Alan Chipwick has never served any jail time at all, or been convicted of any crime whatsoever. Instead, being conveniently killed in a random police drive-by stabbing, only minutes after he'd finished his celebratory glass of water. Some people are just born lucky, I guess. Or maybe the murderer had been David Bowie because he loved him, I don't know. We'll probably never find out what really happened, but after much consideration, I now think I went on the seesaw with my mum after I got off the slide, and, to be honest, that's where I'm headed now. So that is the end of this episode. Good night, and remember, don't waste time. Face crime, face.